Let's pray. God, in these next few minutes, first of all, before we lift up some specific things regarding how we spend the next few minutes, I want to take just a moment to lift up another church and another pastor. I want to pray for Bethel AME Church here in Greenville and for James Gilbert, the pastor. I want to pray for James and his worship, first of all, that he is um, fueled by worship as he's bivocational and holding down a full-time job at L3 that he is... Um, as he's juggling a number of responsibilities, I pray that first and foremost that he's fueled by worship, whether it's working at L3 or whether it's preparing a sermon or um, doing counseling or being a husband or a father. Just think about all the, um, the important tasks that he's taking care of every day. Likely it would be very easy for those things to be accomplished apart from worship, and I just pray that you'll guard his heart in Christ Jesus you will keep him close to you, that you will uh, open the eyes of his heart daily, uh, renew him, refresh him, stir him up by way of reminder so that he serves uh, with the proper fuel, with the proper power, where you get all the glory. I pray that Bethel AME and his family will be blessed as a result. I pray that you'll give him endurance as he faces the difficulties of shepherding uh, both a, a people and a family. I pray that you will give him scriptural, biblical resolve to walk faithfully through the hard things, whatever, they may, whatever it may cost him or his reputation or even the size of his church. Lord, I leave that up to you as I hope that he would leave that up to you and trust you from week to week, day to day thankful that you are sovereign and good and attentive and involved and I'm thankful that for James sake and for Bethel AME's sake and for Crosspoint Fellowship's sake that you are involved in everything thankful you're not aloof disengaged and disinterested but that you're always at work what I pray in these next few minutes as we spend some time in Hebrews 3 that you will open the eyes of our hearts to the greatness of of Christ, that we will leave here enjoying him more than we enjoy him at this moment. Pray that you will speak in spite of me. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3, please. As you're turning there, I'm going to share a a thought with you before we climb into this passage. I have a private war with practical application. Part of it, I think, is probably coming from a, a context growing up in a uh, a church that uh, I value and cherish. My parents are still there, uh, but a church that's largely, at least when I was there, was characterized by topical preaching and sort of dealing with things biblically as they came up. Um, since then, being in different church settings, uh, apart from one when I was in Southern California, they dealt very similar to the church I grew up in, sort of topically, dealing with things as they come up. And really what an emphasis that goes along with that sort of approach to the Scripture is practical application. That, in fact, I was taught this at seminary in preaching classes. If you don't have a practical application, then you must have missed it. and need to go back and find it. Because if people can't walk away with some to-dos, then you must not have done your job. 
And I still, nine years into this thing, having worked eight of those years through the book of John and a year so far through the book of Hebrews, almost a year, um, I still wrestle with that because I find there are often Sundays where we don't really have a to-do list. Despite the fact that I experienced that most of my life, despite the fact that I was taught that in seminary, I'm coming to realize that sometimes practical application, we can make an idol of that too. It'd be like going on a date with your wife and trying to figure out, well, okay, what to-do list will we have as a result of this time that we've spent together? Now, you may have a date where you actually do talk about some things that you need to do with your kids or as a family, but that's not the point of the date, or at least it shouldn't be every date. Then it becomes artificial and dry and sort of businesslike. Hopefully the ideal date is when you just go enjoy each other. And you don't walk away with a to-do list. You've just spent time together enjoying each other. I find that the more and more I move through a book of the Bible, the more and more Sundays we have like that. And this is one of those Sundays. When I was in South Carolina, before Christy and I moved back to Texas, I was finishing up a graduate degree and had plans of going into a doctoral program in physical therapy, which if you know me, you know that would be a horrible fit because I don't like to touch people. I don't know why I want, I thought maybe at a doctoral level you could just tell people, do this, do that, touch that person there. I wouldn't have to do it. Thankfully, it didn't work out, but I did have to spend a, a certain amount of time serving um, at a business, a physical therapy clinic, and um, helping them do exercises and things like that. And the first couple of days I was at this, this uh, clinic, I had to read what's called the Policy and Procedures Manual. Some of you who have gone into business or gone to work for someone, you know that that's probably the first step is you have to sit down and figure out how does this business do business? And if you have some issue come up, how do you deal with it? I don't remember all the most boring things in my life or all of the boring things in my life, but I do remember a few of the most boring, and that was among the most boring. Two whole days spent in a room by myself with a big manual reading through... um, circumstances and situations and how you're to respond. How does the boss want me to handle this situation? Should it come up? And I thought about in, in light of how we so often handle the scripture, we can handle the scripture the same way where it just becomes sort of this resource guide for us where we go to when we have a problem. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we just spent a couple of months dealing with conflict as a topic and going to God's word for insight. But I thought about what would it be like if that's all you did, it might become dry and utilitarian. And if you don't have any problems, you don't really have any drive to go open the book. If you don't have any problems, you don't have any desire to go hear the preaching and teaching of the word, I'm good. (laughs) I don't really have any issues right now. And I thought, how cool would it be if a business, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of the best businesses take a different approach here But if a business, instead of writing a policy and procedures manual, or at least having employees read a policy and procedures manual, instead they had them read something that was more personal. Maybe like the business owner, the one who founded the business, if he wrote out his story. And he included details and specific events that even had humor, intrigue, mystery, And instead of reading a dry and impersonal 
policy and procedures guide, you read his story, you climb into his story and you step out of it finding that you've caught up a lot of his philosophy. You've been caught up in his philosophy. You step out maybe responding to some of these circumstances in a way that he would respond just because you've climbed into his story. And in some ways, you've realized that you're being written into the next chapter as an employee. I thought about how cool it would be if the faith were like that instead of treating our Bibles like it's a policy and procedures manual, which there are occasions where we need to go to God's Word. God, show me how to handle this. But more often than that, if we entered the book, reading the book, sat under the teaching and preaching of the book, if we preached wanting to get to know the character of our Creator and how this whole thing came about and what the whole point is, If we read like that, we might learn about his character. We might learn what he's up to in making a way for a bunch of people that have a serious need. We might read with a different set of eyes, seldom asking, although we may on occasion, what do I do in this circumstance, but usually marveling. Usually wondering that grace should read so low. Usually enjoying what would it be like if that was the the place if that was normative in the way we read our bibles in the way we preached in the way we received the teaching and preaching of his word we might find ourselves marveling enjoying considering and savoring and it might make for a very different people i believe it already has in this church frankly My goal in this sermon and these next few sermons is not for a to-do list for you. My goal is that you walk away enjoying Jesus more. Caught up in the story, seeing yourself in the next unwritten chapter and responding accordingly. Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to read the first six verses. And we're going to spend the majority of the morning just on the first part of verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. I want to give you a little bit of background since it's been some time since we've been in Hebrews a few months this summer. We've stepped away from it. First of all, I want to deal with audience. Secondly, with excuse me, with author and then audience and then occasion. Audience and occasion will be sort of caught up in together. I would encourage you too, as you read a book of the Bible, as you study a book, read with these things in view. Given that we've been out of Hebrews for a little bit, I want to take a moment just to engage these. First of all, the author. This is a book that's really a sermon written by a pastor to his church. He knew these people. He wasn't with them geographically at the moment, so he's writing this sermon out, and thankfully, by God's design, it's written by God through this man to this people to us. 
It's something that we can sit and engage because God's written it to us through these mediums. The author is a pastor written to a people that he knew, a people that were likely Hellenistic, meaning they were dispersed in the Roman Empire, Greek-speaking Jews, likely in Rome, Hellenistic Jewish Christians. They would be a 2,000-year-old version of what we would call today Messianic Jews. They would have been more, messi- or more Jewish than Messianic Jews even today because they, have, would have been, they would have been super saturated in the Jewish context. But they recognized Christ as the promised Messiah, and they trusted in Christ as their Savior and Lord. These guys were um, Greek-speaking. A large part of this book of Hebrews references what's called the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. You might even know that there is such thing. There is. Most of the Old Testament... Or the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there is an early translation in Greek that's called the Septuagint. And that's what they studied in the Roman Empire if they were apart from uh, Israel. This pastor writes to this Jewish Christian church, and he knows them. He knows their trials. He knows their triumphs. And he knows, the point of this book, their temptations. See, these guys in this context, these Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jewish Christians were in danger of going back to Judaism, of stepping away from their Christian faith, of bailing on the Christian faith altogether. They were in danger of bailing on the Christian faith because it's hard. It was then very much so. It's frightening. It was then very much so. Difficult and dangerous. They were experiencing tremendous persecution, especially, interestingly enough, at the hands of fellow Jews who weren't Christians, Jews, Jews, and secondly, at the hands of Rome. You may know enough of the story to know that Nero lighted his garden oftentimes with human torches that were made of, of Christians stuck on a pole. Christians in this day and age became fodder for the Colosseum Entertainment, lion food. So you can understand at least the difficulties they were facing, and you can in some ways understand, well, (laughs) I would imagine that it might be a temptation to bail on the Christian faith if that's what all it meant. Very difficult time to be a Christian, and their Christianity, their faith altogether is on the bubble. I have to ask myself, and in preparing this sermon, I ask myself, well, you know, that's a pretty unique context, and it's not one that I can really relate to. I don't know anybody that's been used as a human torch. I don't know anybody in my context that's lion food. I don't know anybody that's lost their job necessarily for their faith, although I've heard conversations at times where things could be connected to that. Things don't seem to be a direct application, but the more and more I've thought about it, the more I've realized that our version of their danger, our version of their difficulty might be some things like this. We are in danger of bailing on the faith because if it's done rightly, it will be difficult and dangerous as well in these ways. It will involve your reputation. I've heard from people, people at Crosspoint, people that have said, you know, my family has asked me, you believe that? 
My family has asked me questions like, you go to Crosspoint Fellowship? People I work with have said, oh, you go to Crosspoint Fellowship? Or, humph, you go to church? You're serious about that stuff? You're going to face some issues regarding your reputation if it's done rightly. Done rightly, you're going to face some difficulties and some challenges when it comes to accountability. Church that's not done rightly says, man, it's okay to just come and go week by week. We'll smile, glad hand each other, shake hands, and we'll see you next week. But that's not church done rightly. Church done rightly is involved in each other's lives, not as meddlers, but as brothers and sisters. When, two, when one falls down, the other one's there to help them up. Unlike Cain and Abel, we are our brother's keeper. Church done rightly gets complicated and difficult and hard when we truly want to hold each other accountable. It's a whole lot easier to hold someone accountable than it is to be held accountable. But it's all hard. Church done rightly is hard, and we're all in danger of just bailing on it just because it's hard. No thanks. Church done rightly asks hard questions. Church done rightly speaks the truth in love. Church done rightly hears the loving truth and repents and moves and grows and encourages and rebukes and exhorts and admonishes and encourages. I think we're all in danger of stepping away from it at times because it's difficult if it's done rightly. It's expensive at times when maybe you might want something, but someone over here might need something. Church done rightly can be expensive because you may have to sacrifice your want for someone else's need in the body. Church done rightly does those sorts of things. And we're in danger of leaving and bailing on it at any point because it's hard. Church done rightly might mean leaving your homeland, selling everything you own and going to live in a foreign land and living out your faith there. Church done rightly is dangerous and it's difficult. And if we're going to climb into their context, we realize although we're not Jewish Christians persecuted by Jews in Rome, this book still speaks and there's still nothing new under the sun. It's a living book for living people doing real life. Now, I want to unpack these first six, six verses in about a minute, and then we're going to spend the rest of our morning in verse 1. The therefore, every time you see a therefore, it's the stupidest phrase in the world and one that I've always remembered, probably because of its stupidity, and I hate to even say it. It's just a good thing. It's just quippy, and I hate quippy stuff. But if you see a therefore, ask the question, what it's, what's it there for? Okay? All right, we'll give that just a moment. I hate that. <laughs> But if you ask the question, then you have to look back at the first two chapters and go, okay, he's, he's connecting the first two chapters to what's about to unfold in the first six verses of chapter three. In the beginning of, of chapter one, the passage that was read this morning during our worship and song time, in the first few verses, Jesus is presented as heir, as creator, as radiance of the glory of God, as exact imprint of his nature, as sustainer, as redeemer, 
and ruler, seven things that Jesus is. In light of these seven great, awesome, massive, monumental, gargantuan, thinking of all the synonyms I can think of, things that Jesus is, therefore, consider Jesus in light of who he is. The rest of chapter 1 contrasts Christ with angels. We don't have a real big angelology, but Jewish in the Jewish context, they had a pretty high view of angels. So it was a very necessary argument for him to present that Jesus is superior to angels. In light of his position as superior to angels, consider Jesus. The rest of chapter 2, in light of his position seated and reigning and ruling and having earned the dominion that we lost in the garden, in light of that, consider Jesus. In light of his complete humanity and his complete divinity, consider Jesus. And then these next five verses, five and a half verses after that verb, consider is consider him as apostle and high priest. This is where we're going to be going in these next few weeks. As apostle and high priest, as faithful like Moses, as the builder of God's house, contrast with the house itself. And as the son is contrast with a servant. And lastly, in these first six verses, we'll be dealing with, at the end of these, sermon, these sermons that we work through this passage, we'll be dealing with what is God's house and who is in it? Or who is it? Some really sweet sermons coming up, enjoying our eternal, divine husband. But this morning, we're just going to consider the first half of the first verse. Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Those are going to be the three parts. If you want a map and a plan for the next few minutes, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. First of all, holy brothers. He could have just said brothers. There are times when I need one of my children, and I may call to them, Evan, come here. I don't need any adjectives. I don't need any flowery terminology there. I just want to address her, and I want her to do the verb of coming here. Very simple. But there are other times when I may want to say more than just calling a child. For example, I may say to Luke, Luke, I've got a project for you, obedient son. See that verb, obedient. That verb, excuse me, that adjective, obedient, is connected to the verb. What is the verb? I've. <laughs> That's not a good, good example right there. <laughs> it fell apart right there. But it hadn't fallen apart altogether. The adjective is connected to what I have planned for Luke. I refer to him as obedient son or obedient Luke because I have something that I want him to do where I want his obedience to help him follow through with it. I could have just said, Luke, come here, I have a project for you. But I'm appealing to what I've seen in him and what I hope for in him. Another example, I mean, there's some other verbs you might use with people from time to time, like funny, beautiful, handsome, intelligent. 
The adjective has something to do with the content of the message and specifically the verb. And that's true in this case. Holy brothers, consider Jesus. Consider being the verb. Holy brothers, consider Jesus. Here's another example I thought of. You know, your Easter pictures that you take on you know, the morning you have your, your nice, beautiful Easter duds on. You get all the kids out there and you'd say, okay, kids... Okay, handsome and beautiful kids, smile. You see, the adjectives are connected to the verb. I had a difficult time thinking of more examples because I think in Western context, we're probably pretty utilitarian in our language, and we don't use as many adjectives as I think we probably should. There's lots of verbs and very few adjectives, unless you might be a songwriter or a poet or something like that. Most of us don't use very many adjectives. But this adjective is here for a purpose. Holy brothers says far more than just brothers. He's making a statement to them. And the point that he's making with them as he calls them holy brothers is the only appropriate response to who Christ is, the therefore, chapters 1 and 2, the greatness of who Christ is, and our calling into this faith is holiness. It's the only appropriate response is a life of holiness, a life of purity, a life of righteousness, a life that's congruent with the gospel that you're walking in. I found these definitions for holiness that I thought were appropriate. When the love and character of God rules in your life, holiness. Holiness is to be separated from the common and set aside for sacred use. That's the appeal, holy brothers. To be set aside for sacred use. To be conformed to his perfect will. That's the only appropriate response to who Christ is, is to be conformed to who he is. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. A couple other places this is used both in Hebrews chapter 12, where we find that this is not just some stretch that I want to squeeze more out of this adjective than, than should be there. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, says this. He's speaking of discipline as a father disciplines his child, as God disciplines us. And he says this, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. A few verses later, in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is important to this pastor and this preacher, and he's calling his people to it because it's the only appropriate response to who Jesus is. The next phrase he uses back in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 1, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. This is the second section of the sermon. I wanted to define calling, and I realized the appropriate thing to do might be to just go to God's Word and see how God defines it over time. Look at snapshots where God called 
In Genesis chapter 1, it's a great place to start. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Okay, your day, your night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Verse 8, and God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. In verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas, and God saw that it was good. God has been calling things from the very beginning. The next very important picture that I could think of of calling is in Genesis chapter 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, and the little title in my Bible right above this chapter is the call of Abram. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. One of the most important calls in our Bible because Father Abraham is our father too. Your day, your night, you're a sea, your earth, and Abram, you're mine. He's been calling since the very beginning, I thought about other calls, like Moses' call from the burning bush. Moses, lead my people out of Egypt. I thought about other calls, like a call to Samuel. I read this a little bit. I thought it was kind of cool. Now, the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, here I am. And he runs off to Eli. Eli, what you need? Eli said, I didn't call you. It happens again. The Lord called to Samuel. Samuel. You can imagine what kind of voice he must have had. Booming voice. Well, he thinks it's Eli. He runs off to Eli and says, leave me alone. Go lie down. The Lord called again to Samuel a third time. He goes to Eli and Eli says, just say yes, Lord. And leave me alone. Let me sleep. And the Lord came and stood calling, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. God's been calling since the very beginning. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, one called Peter, or who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. In keeping with the character of his father, God the Son continues to call. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. 
God's been calling all sorts of things and call, calling all sorts of people. And really, what if, you, if there's a theme, if anything, it's the unimpressive and the unlikely sorts. God the Son, in keeping with the nature of God, says, Come, follow me, Simon, fisherman, and I'll make you a fisher of men. And he calls to crowds of common people and says, Come, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Probably one of the most poignant calls in the life of our church was in John chapter 11, where a man four days dead, decaying and stinking, hopeless, doomed, far beyond any human reach. Here's the effectual call of Jesus Christ, Lazarus, come forth. Man, he's been calling since the very beginning, and God's people have to have a view of it. I found as I began to look for calling and trying to develop what it is, and just from the Scripture, take these little snapshots and try and let that develop in some ways an unspoken definition for us, I found one book that had a special handling of it. It's saturated throughout our Bibles, especially the New Testaments, but I found one in Romans one, devout, one book that from the very first words deal with calling. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God on the Damascus Road, called. A few verses later, he writes to other people, who are called to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Those go together. Loved by God and called. It's his love that calls us. His love is connected to the call. If he loves you, he calls you. To those who are loved by God and called to be saints, I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, apostle and writing to you. A few chapters later in chapter 8, a very familiar passage for us. Chapter 8, verse 28, he says, We know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I've read that passage, I've quoted that passage, I've referred to that passage a hundred times, even in the last few months, and it's just recently that I realized called is in there. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers, and those whom he predestined, yes, we do preach that here. You, you mean you preach that at that church? Y'all believe that? Yes. It's in our Bibles. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Uh, let's see, who, who, who am I going to call to do this? Abram, I'm calling you from Ur of Chaldeans. Samuel, I'm calling you to do this. Levi, I'm calling you to do this. James and John, sons of Zebedee, I'm calling you to do this. Lazarus, I'm calling you to do this. Peter, Simon, Andrew, I'm calling you to something. Crosspoint Fellowship, Hebrew Church, we're called to something. 
Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. As I studied this call topic, I thought about these Jewish Christian brothers and sisters in Rome. There's some indication from chapter 2, verse 3, where he says the word that was uh, heard first and then attested to us by those who heard implies that the Jewish Christians, both the preacher and the people in the church, are second-generation believers. It implies that they did not hear Christ firsthand. They did not see Christ's ministry firsthand. Maybe they weren't at Pentecost, but maybe their parents were. Maybe they weren't at Passover when Christ was crucified, but maybe their parents were. It looks like these guys were second-generation believers, one degree of separation from those who saw and heard Christ firsthand. And I'm thinking, man, I cannot imagine a faith or a message that would be more potent. And then I'm thinking, yet here the Hebrews preacher is having to appeal to their call. And I'm realizing apparently the call in some, degree, some way decays. Maybe in some way if we're not stirred up by way of reminder that it's perishable. Maybe in some ways if, we, if it's not recast and regrabbed that we might forget our calling and need to be reminded. There one degree of separation from those who saw and heard Christ firsthand. And here the Hebrews preacher is having to remind them how could we think that we wouldn't have to be reminded of it often of our calling maybe it's never been built into us in the first place which might be even a bigger problem was reading about calling and reading about god even speaking things into existence and then calling them day and calling them night. I couldn't help but think about this passage. I'm just going to read it to you. You can jot it down. I'm already there. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, and I'm going to call you earth. I'm going to call you sea. I'm going to call you day. I'm going to call you night. That very same God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The very God that spoke creation into existence and called it one thing or another, spoke into you and called you. Man, calling is huge. Do you have a sense of your calling, a view of it? I was called from death to life at the age of six. Or at least that's when I heard the call. I was probably called a number of times before then. You're called week after week. You sit under the teaching and preaching of the Word. I was six years old when I sat with Mrs. Winters, my royal ambassador's instructor. I sat with Mrs. Winters in one of those little wooden chairs that's made for churches, church chairs that are are little kid size, and they're so overbuilt that an elephant could sit in them. They're like, you're like two, two hands to pick them up. <clears throat> I sat hunkered down. In, well, I wouldn't hunker down. I sat, I was a little six-year-old, so I'm sitting six-year-old size in them. Miss Winters is sitting hunkered down in her version of it. She's sitting in one of them, right, looking me in the eyes and telling me about Jesus and telling me about my sin and opening passages to me where I heard the call. Ben. Come forth 
I was called from death to life 38 years ago, and I have to confess, I don't often refer back to that call enough. Share with you how stupid I can be at times. Even recently, I'd like to say that it doesn't happen. Um, it happens less often, but kind of a hobby for me, pastime for not pastime, but a, an activity for me is I ride my bike a lot. I race some. I get up in the wee hours of the morning and train, like with a taillight. It's so early. I'm serious about it. It's more than a hobby. I'm serious about it. I entered a race yesterday, sort of the highlight race for me for the year. In fact, it's the only real official race I did this year. Here in Greenville, the Cotton Patch, 61 miles. At mile 50, I had a great race up to mile 52. 20 miles into it, there's a wreck right in front of me. I go in the ditch. I have one of my water bottles out. I'm drinking water. I got one hand on the handlebars. I'm going in the ditch, braking, and manage to not crash. I'm like, man. And I managed to catch up with the group after that, which is just, that's hard to do because they're going 25 miles an hour. You stopped. But I caught them, and I'm like, oh, yeah, man. 20 miles later, I have to bunny hop a dead raccoon. 25 miles an hour, I'm bunny hopping a dead raccoon. It was such a feat that all the guys around me, it's like 65 people riding together. All the guys around me are like, man, that's a good job. That's amazing. I'm like, yeah, I got it going on. I got this. Mile 52, you know, I'm nine miles from the finish line. I'm like, I, I got this. I'm thinking out my strategy for the sprint, you know, the final few miles. And uh, there's a little breakaway, and I start picking up the pace, and, and both my quads cramp up to the point where I can see what look like dents in my legs, where the muscles are so cramped that I have to stop and get off my bike while the pack rides away and squat down, grunting. I'm at a feed station where they have people, helpers, and I hear this lady that's probably never been in a bike race, a bike race in her entire life saying, you should have eaten some bananas. She almost met Paul Asterbin. <laughs> it was very close. She didn't. She didn't. I share all that to tell you it's very humbling to come in by yourself later. Very humbling because it, it often means too much to me. And I'm ashamed that I sometimes find more identity in what kind of cyclist I am than I am a called child of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I confess that. I was down in the dumps all day yesterday, and here I'm about to preach on this. How stupid. Man, we're called. Man, that's everything. That fuels us. Because we're all going to be on the bubble at times. That fuels us. Things are always going to be hard for us at one time or another, but our call fuels us. Nine years ago, Christy and I were called to Greenville to be part of a church plant. <clears throat> I didn't even know what a church plant was. But um, 
we were called to be a part of a church plant. This, what we're in right now, not the building, but this people. Nine years ago, this a mile and a half from the planting church, from the mother church. Well, that's weird. I thought you plant churches in places where they aren't. Maybe it's a unique, unique situation. Maybe they're different, and they want a different kind of church. A mile and a half from the mother church, and then come to find out it's also in a town that is probably what some would call super saturated with churches, 98 to 100 Christian churches in our community. Why would you go plant a church there? That's just not even good sense. I mean, that just doesn't even make sense. Why would someone do that? And while the world and maybe even a lot of Christianity would say that's a really bad idea, God called us here. And I do often refer to that call. While I don't think often enough about my call, my Lazarus call, we might call it, I do think often about our call here. And it compels me to press on even when someone wants to hold me accountable and even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, it compels me to press on. Christy and I do often refer to that call because it gets us through hard stuff with each other. It gets us through hard stuff with our community. It gets us through hard stuff that happens in our church. It compels me to pour myself into teaching and preaching, and it compels me to pour the teaching and preaching into myself. I ask you to just think about this for a minute. What's your call? Do you have a view of your Lazarus call? Does it compel you to work through hard stuff with people relentlessly, to not bail on each other? No, I'm, I'm not going to quit you because my call fuels me. My call keeps me going. Do you have a call? Your Lazarus call maybe or maybe your call to be a husband or wife. Maybe your call to be a parent. That point when a husband and wife turned to each other and said, okay, let's have some kids. And your call to be a parent. Or maybe it's your call to be a small group shepherd or a deacon or a fellow elder. Those calls are important, and those calls fuel us. It's what the Hebrews preacher was appealing to right here and a bunch of people that were on the bubble. I found something really interesting. We're going to deal with our third thing here briefly in, in a moment, and it's brief. But I found something very interesting, and I've never seen it before, is that holiness and calling go together. It's almost formulaic in our Bibles. Holiness and calling, I've never really seen them together. But it's almost a formula. Listen to this, Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Holiness and calling go together. Here's another picture. 2 Timothy 1, 9. That's not what I'm looking for. 2 Timothy 1.9, yes. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. A holy calling. Calling and holiness go together. 
Here's another one, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. What I realized as I saw this almost formulate treatment of calling and holiness is I realized that if you have calling without holiness, then your calling may not be true. James says it's not because he says true faith works. If you say you have calling on your life, but you have, don't have holiness that's congruent with that, and holiness, you could say being holified, being sanctified. If there's not movement in your life that's in keeping with your calling, then you have to wonder if your calling is true. And flip that around. If you have holiness without calling, you won't. <laughs> you won't have holiness without calling. You might be end up find yourself just a whitewashed tomb. It has a little list of to-dos or not-to-dos, thou shalt nots, without a truly changed inside. Calling and holiness go together. And lastly, man, this is beautiful. Holy, called people consider Jesus. It's what we do. Holy, called people, consider Jesus. This word, consider, this verb, is used elsewhere in the book of Hebrews. I want you to turn to Luke 12, because I do want you to see this next passage. He uses it elsewhere in chapter 10, verse 24. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as one, or as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. It's a word that he uses in regards to our handling of each other and how we're walking with each other. Jesus uses this word, consider, in Luke chapter 12. And it's beautiful how he uses it. Luke chapter 12, verse 13, it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I've never worked through inheritance issues with, with my family. But I've heard from those who have had to work through inheritance issues with their family that they can be seriously confusing and stressful and difficult. I've had my eye on that picture forever. That painting of mom's. And I don't care what else I get. I want that. You know, Dad's shotgun, that's all I want, but I'm going to have it. And then comes time to sort that stuff out, and things come unglued. I've heard about it. It happens. So this guy is dealing with his inheritance, and he's appealing to Jesus, which is just funny. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. What a lame Jesus if he had said, okay, brother, divide the inheritance with him. I'm glad he didn't. He said, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? He's such a true speaker. He said, take care and be on your guard against covetousness, inheritance dude. 
For one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possession. And then he told them, that's being the crowd of verse 13, a parable. He tells them this parable, but I want to look specifically at what he tells his disciples in verse 22. That's like the inner teaching. Okay, he's, somebody from the crowd says, hey, Jesus, tell my brother to divide up the inheritance. He speaks to the crowd, and then he turns to his disciples for some real juicy teaching. That's what he does right here in verse 22. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. There, here, here's the word. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And of which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you who are not able, if, if then you are not able to, uh, to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Here it is again. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus presents the remedy for anxiety and small faith as considering. Consider the ravens. Consider the lilies. And the Hebrews preacher connects to that same word, consider. And he says, you people of God that are anxious and worried and fearful and in a difficult situation, you people with real families, real bills, real jobs, real in-laws, real health issues, and then on top of that, with real persecution, you people... Consider Jesus. It's the medicine. Consider Jesus. Simply but urgently consider. It's all we've got, and in it we've got everything. If you come to me for counsel, or Brad, or Scott, are your small group shepherd or a deacon? It's all we've got. And in it, we've got everything. Are you anxious about something? Are you troubled about something? But no, this situation's unique. Jesus won't help me with that. Yes, he is the medicine. You can't tell me your problem is worse than what the Hebrew people were going through. And the medicine is considered Jesus. I can't imagine there weren't some in the church that were going, man, what else you got? I mean, I need something else. It's not enough. I mean, I, I got Jesus. No, no. Consider him. Consider him. He's the medicine. Turn to 2 Corinthians 3.18. I want to show it to you. I just want to show you that I'm not making it up. And it's so good. Mm. This is good medicine. And being sort of the 
Puritan-like dude that I am, I'm going to show you another passage that I won't have you turn to, but just want to saturate, saturate you with proof. I'm going to read this passage two ways, and I want you to pay attention to how I read it, because the point is how I read it. The point is in how I read it. 2 Corinthians 3, 3, 6, excuse me, or 4, 6. No, no, that's not what I want. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, I already said it, yeah. (laughs) And we all with unveiled face are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. I'm going to read it again. I'm not going to change it, though. I'm going to read it because we've got a point to be made. And we all with unveiled face are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If you read that, you're like, man, that's cool. I'm being transformed from one degree of glory to another because I'm in this mess. I've got this inheritance issue. I've got this health issue. I've got this marital issue. I've got this job issue. I've got this besetting sin issue. I've got all these issues, and I sure am being glad I'm being transformed from one degree of glory to the next because that means I'm going to be out of this sometime, somehow, some way. But if you read it that way or you think it that way, you've missed it. Because the golden nugget for this entire sermon is in that phrase. The golden nugget for the entire sermon is in the phrase that I left out. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You think that you're going to work out of that besetting issue without beholding God? Forget about it. Get comfortable with it. You think you're going to work through those marital issues without beholding the Lord? I hope he doesn't let you get away with it. I bet he's not. You think you're going to work through those identity issues, those depression issues, those money issues? Name the issue. You think you're going to work through it without beholding the Lord, without considering Jesus? The Hebrews church isn't going to get away with it. The Corinthian church isn't going to get away with it. How can you? It's just another way of saying considering Jesus. Beholding the Lord, you are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. That is the nugget. What else you got? Nothing. On purpose. (laughs) You mean you don't have some sort of high-speed program, something you can do, you know, smoke mirrors, light, light show? No. You mean all you got for me is to ask, well, what did you do with Sunday's message? Yep. It's what sustains me. It's what sustains the people of God. Is your situation so unique that beholding Jesus won't help? (laughs) Think about it. John 15 yet puts it another way. I'm going to read it because I'm already there. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, you could say, considers me. You could say, beholds the glory of the Lord. And I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Huh. Apart from considering him, you can do nothing. Apart from beholding the glory of the Lord... You can do nothing. It would be like taking a 
a, a branch that falls off the oak tree in your backyard and going digging a hole in the ground and sticking that branch in there and going out and checking it for fruit every day. You're like, huh. Yep. Still no fruit. I can't understand it. Be like taking that stick and nailing it to the side of your house and checking it for fruit every day. It has no nourishment. It has no goods. It's not beholding the glory of the Lord. It's like a stick that's never going to bear any fruit. That's how important considering Jesus is. It's all we have, and it's everything, and it will never be assumed. If you say, oh, I got Jesus, but I need help with this circumstance, then we'll take you back to Jesus. He's the medicine. Lord's Supper is our weekly endeavor to consider Jesus. It's our weekly exercise, and that I don't want that word to sound like it's just some sort of ritual. It's our weekly application of beholding the glory of the Lord. It's our weekly pursuit to abide in him. When we do this weekly, we remember what he did and we enjoy him. We have a chance to remember our calling also, or maybe for the first time today, to realize that's part of it, to keep it in view, and to respond with the appropriate holy life. God, I pray that whatever we are as a people, that we are true to these sort of realities. I pray that we are true to realizing that we are tax collectors and sinners saved by grace. I pray... Lord, that we can enjoy today that on our best day that we are still in need of so much grace to stand next to your holiness. And Lord, I'm thankful that you distribute that and dispense that amply. I'm thankful that as we consider Jesus, as we behold the glory of the Lord, as we abide in him, that you work in us fruit I'm thankful that you work in us holiness. I'm thankful that you work in us a reflection of your character and your greatness and your goodness. Lord, I feel like where we stand this morning is squarely in the middle of where you would have us. I pray, Lord, that your grace and your mercy would bind us there and keep us there, enjoying our husband, making much of him, understanding more what you've done for us in him. And I pray that we'll be caught up in the story. I pray that it will see us through when we're on the bubble. 
thankful for the opportunity to dine with our Savior this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.